Chapter forty two of The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter forty two. Eleanor, kept in order by a continual expectation of seeing Harleigh, ceased to require the presence of Juliet, who, but for the sorrows of her friend, would have experienced a felicity to which she had long been a stranger, the felicity of being loved because known, esteemed and valued because tried and proved, the consideration that is the boon of even the most generous benevolence, however it may soothe the heart, cannot elevate the spirits. But here good opinion was reciprocated, trust was interchanged, confidence was mutual. The affliction of Gabriella, though of a more permanent nature, because from an irreparable cause, was yet highly susceptible of consolation from friendship, and when once the acute emotions, arising from the tale of woe which she had had to relate at the meeting, were abated, the charm which the presence of Juliet dispensed, and the renewal of early ideas, pristine feelings, and first affections, soon reflected back their influence upon her own mind, which gradually strengthened and insensibly revived. Juliet immediately resigned her large apartment, and fixed herself in the small room of Gabriella. There they settled that they would live together, work together, share their little profits, and endure their failures, in common. There they hoped to recover their peace of mind, if not to reanimate their native spirits, and to be restored to the harmony of social sympathy, if not to that of happiness. Yet it was with difficulty that they learned to enjoy each other's society, upon such terms as their altered condition now exacted, where the eye must never be spared from laborious business, to search, or to reciprocate a sentiment, in those precious moments of endearing converse, which, unconsciously, swell into hours, ere they are missed as minutes. Their intercourse was confined to oral language alone. The lively intelligence, the rapid conception, the arch remark, the cordial smile, which give grace to kindness, playfulness to counsel, gentleness to raillery, and softness even to reproach. These, the expressive sources of delight, and of comprehension, in social commerce, they were fain wholly to relinquish, from the hurry of unremitting diligence, and undivided attention to manual toil. Nevertheless, to inhale the same air, and to feel the consoling certitude, that they were no longer cast wholly upon pity, or charity, for good opinion, were blessings that filled their thoughts with gratitude to Providence, and brought back calm and comfort to their minds. Still, at every sunrise, Gabriella visited the ashes of her little son, where she poured forth, in maternal enthusiasm, thanks and benedictions upon his departed spirit, that her earliest friend, the chosen sharer of her happier days, was restored to her in the hour of her desolation, and restored to her there, on that fatal yet adored spot, which contained the ever-loved 
though lifeless remains, of her darling boy. Juliet, in this peaceful interval, learnt, from the voluble Selina, all that had been gathered from Mrs. Golding, relative to the seclusion of Elinor. Elinor had travelled post to Portsmouth, whence she had sailed to the Isle of Wight. There, meeting with a foreign servant out of place, she engaged him in her service, and bid him purchase some clothes of an indigent emigrant. She then dressed herself grotesquely, yet, as far as she could, decently, in man's attire, and making her maid follow her example, returned to the neighbourhood of Brighthelmstone, and took lodgings, in the character of a foreigner, who was deaf and dumb, at Shoreham, where, uninterruptedly and unsuspectedly, she resided. Here, by means of her new domestic, she obtained constant intelligence of the proceedings of Juliet, and she was no sooner informed of the musical benefit, in which an air, with an harp accompaniment, was to be performed by Miss Ellis, than she sent her new attendant to the assembly-room to purchase a ticket. Golding, who went thither with the lackey, met Harley in the street as he was quitting the lodgings of Juliet. The disguise of the maid saved her from being recognized, but her tidings set her mistress on fire. The moment seemed now arrived for the long-destined catastrophe, and the few days preceding the benefit were spent in its preparation. Careless of what was thought, Elinor had since casually, though not confidentially, related that her intention had been to mount suddenly into the orchestra during the performance of Juliet, and thence to call upon Harley, whom she could not doubt would be amongst the audience, and, at the instant of his joining them, proclaim to the whole world her immortal passion, and expire between them. But the fainting fit of Juliet, and its uncontrollable effect upon Harley, had been so insupportable to her feelings, as to precipitate her design. She acknowledged that she had studied how to die without torture, by inflicting a wound by which she might bleed gently to death, while indulging herself, to the last moment, in pouring forth to the idol of her heart, the fond effusions of her ardent but exalted passion. The tranquillity of Elinor, built upon false expectations, could not be long unshaken. Impatience and suspicion soon took its place, and Mr. Naird was compelled to acknowledge that Mr. Harley had set out upon a distant tour, without leaving his address, even at his own house, where he had merely given orders that his letters should be forwarded to a friend. The rage, grief, and shame of the wretched Elinor, now nearly destroyed, in a moment, all the cares and the skill of Mr. Naird, and of her physician. She impetuously summoned Juliet, to be convinced that she was not a party in the elopement, and was only rescued from sinking into utter despair, by adroit exhortations from Mr. Naird, to yield patiently to his ordinances, lest she should yet die without a last view of Harley. This plea led her, once more, though with equal disgust to herself and to the whole world, to submit to every medical direction that might give her sufficient strength to devise means for her ultimate project, and to put them into practice. 
Mr. Naird archly confessed, in private, to Juliet, that the real danger or safety of Miss Jodrell, so completely hung upon giving the reins, or the curb, to her passions, that she might, without difficulty, from her resolution to die no other death than that of heroic love, in the presence of its idol, be spurred on, while awaiting, or pursuing, its object, to the verge of a very comfortable old age. He acknowledged himself, also, secretly entrusted with the abode of Mr. Harley. Elinor, when somewhat calmed, demanded of Juliet when, and how, her meetings with Harley had been renewed. Juliet recounted what had passed, sparing such details as might be hurtful, and solemnly protesting that all intercourse was now at an end. With a view to draw Elinor from this agitating subject, she then related, at full length, her meeting in the churchyard, with the friend whom she had so long vainly sought. In a short time afterwards, feeling herself considerably advanced towards a recovery, Elinor impetuously again sent for Juliet to say, "'What is your plan? Tell it me sincerely. What is it you mean to do?' Juliet answered that her choice was small, and that her means were almost null, but when she lamented the severe difficulties of a female, who, without fortune or protection, had her way to make in the world, Elinor, with strong derision, called out, "'Debility and folly! Put aside your prejudices, and forget that you are a dawdling woman, to remember that you are an active human being, and your female difficulties will vanish into the vapour of which they are formed. Misery has taught me to conquer mine, and I am now as ready to defy the world as the world can be ready to hold me up to ridicule. To make people wise you must make them indifferent, to give them courage you must make them desperate. "'Tis then only that we throw aside affectation and hypocrisy, and act from impulse." Laughing now, though with bitterness, rather than gaiety, "'What does the world say,' she cried, "'to find that I still live, after the pompous funeral orations, declaimed by myself, upon my death? Does it suspect that I found second thoughts best, and that I delayed my execution, thinking like the man in the song?' that for sure I could die whenever I would, but that I could live but as long as I could. Well, ye that laugh, laugh on, for I, when not sick of myself, laugh too. But to escape mockery, we must all be guided one by another. All do, and all say, the very same thing. Yet why? Are we alike in our thoughts? Are we alike in our faces? No. Happily, however, that soporiferous monotony is beginning to get obsolete. The sublimity of revolution has given a greater shake to the minds of men than to the kingdoms of the earth. After pausing, then, a few minutes, Ellis, she cried, if you are really embarrassed, why should you not go upon the stage? You know how transcendentally you act. That which might seem passable in a private representation— Juliet answered, might, at a public theatre, foe, foe, you know perfectly well your powers, but you blight them, I suppose, yourself with anathemas from excommunicating scruples. 
you are amongst the cold, the heartless, the ungifted, who, to discredit talents, and render them dangerous, leave their exercise to vice, by making virtue fear to exert, or even patronize them. "'No, madam, indeed!' cried Juliet. "'I admire, most feelingly, the noble art of declamation. How, then, can I condemn the profession which gives to it life and soul?' which personifies the most exalted virtues, which brings before us the noblest characters, and makes us witnesses to the sublimest actions. The stage, well regulated, would be the school of juvenile emulation, would soothe the sorrow in the unhappy, and afford merited relaxation to the laborious. Reformed, indeed, I wish it, and purified, but not destroyed. Why, then, do you disdain to wear the buskins? Disdain is by no means the word. Talents are a constant source to me of delight, and those who, rare but in existence, unite to their public exercise, private virtue and merit, I honour and esteem even more than I admire. And every mark I could show to such of consideration, were I so situated as to bestow, not require protection, I should regard as reflecting credit not on them, but on myself. "'Pen and ink!' cried Elinor, impatiently. "'I'll write for you to the manager this moment.' "'Hold, madam!' cried Juliet, smiling. "'Much as I am enchanted with the art, I am not going to profess it. On the contrary, I think it so replete with dangers and improprieties, however happily they may sometimes be combated by fortitude and integrity.' that when a young female not forced by peculiar circumstances or impelled by resistless genius exhibits herself a willing candidate for public applause she must have i own other notions or other nerves than mine ellis ellis you only fear to alarm or offend the men who would keep us from every office but making puddings and pies for their own precious palates oh woman Poor subdued woman, thou art as dependent mentally upon the arbitrary customs of man, as man is corporally upon the established laws of his country. She now grew disturbed, and went on warmly, though nearly to herself. By the oppressions of their own statutes and institutions, they render us insignificant, and then speak of us as if we were so born. But what have we tried, in which we have been foiled? They dare not trust us with their own education, and their own opportunities for distinction. I accept the article of fighting. Against that there may, perhaps, be some obstacles. But to be condemned as weaker vessels in intellect, because inferior in bodily strength and stature, we cannot cope with them as boxers and wrestlers. They appreciate not the understandings of one another by such manual and muscular criterions. They assert not that one man has more brains than another because he is taller, that he is endowed with more illustrious virtues because he is stouter. They judge him not to be less ably formed for haranguing in the Senate, for administering justice in the courts of law, for teaching science at the universities, because he could ill resist a bully or conquer a footpad. No. Woman is left out in the scales of human merit only because they dare not weigh her. Then, turning suddenly to Ellis, "'And you, Ellis, you!' 
she cried, endowed with every power to set prejudice at defiance, and to shew and teach the world that woman and man are fellow-creatures, you too are coward enough to bow down unresistingly to this thraldom? Juliet hazarded not any reply. Yet what futile inconsistency dispenses this prejudice? This woman, whom they estimate thus below, they elevate above themselves. They require from her, in defiance of their examples, in defiance of their lures, angelic perfection. She must be mistress of her passions. She must never listen to her inclinations. She must not take a step of which the purport is not visible. She must not pursue a measure of which she cannot publish the motive. She must always be guided by reason, though they deny her understanding. Frankness, the noblest of our qualities, is her disgrace. Sympathy, the most exquisite of our feelings, is her bane. She stopped here, conscious, colouring, indignant, and dropped the subject, to say, Tell me again, I demand, what is it you mean to do? Return to your concert singing and harping? Ah, oh, madam! cried Juliet, reproachfully. Can you believe me not yet satisfied with attempting any sort of public exhibition? Nay, nay, cried Elinor, resuming her careless gaiety. What passed that evening will only have served to render you more popular. You may make your own terms now with the managers, for the subscription will fill, merely to get a stare at you. If I were poor myself, I would engage to inquire a large fortune, in less than a week, by advertising, at two pence a head, a sight of the lady that stabbed herself. What, however, she continued, is your purpose? Will you go and live with Mrs. Ireton? She has just come hither to give her favourite lapdog a six weeks bathing. What say you to the place of her toad-eater? It may be a very lucrative thing, and I can procure it for you with the utmost ease. It is commonly vacant every ten days. Besides, she has been dying to have you in her toils, ever since she had known that you spurned the proposition, when it was started by Mrs. Howell. Juliet protested that any species of fatigue would be preferable to subservience of such a sort. Perhaps you are afraid of seeing too much of Ireton. Be under no apprehension. He makes it a point not to visit her. He cannot endure her. Besides, tis so rustic, he says, to have a mother. Juliet answered that her sole plan now was to be guided by her friend. And who is this friend? Is she of the family of the incognitas also? What do you call her? L.S.? Juliet only replied by stating their project of needlework. Elinor scoffed the notion, affirming that they would not obtain a morsel of bread to a glass of water above once in three days. She felt, nevertheless, sufficient respect to the design of the noble fugitive, to send her a sealed note of what she called her approbation. This note Juliet took in charge. It contained a draft for fifty pounds. "'Ah, generous Elinor!' thought Juliet, tears of gratitude glistening in her eyes. "'What a mixture of contrasting qualities, sully and ennoble your character in turn!' Ah, why to intellect so strong, a heart so liberal, a temper so gay, is there not joined a better portion of judgment, a larger one of diffidence, a sense of feminine propriety, and a mind rectified by religion, 
not abandoned, uncontrolled, to imagination. Gabriella, though truly touched by a generosity so unexpected, declined accepting its fruits, not being yet, she said, so helpless, however poor, as to prefer pecuniary obligation to industry. She would leave, therefore, the donation for those who had lost the resources of independence which she yet possessed, youth and strength. The tender admiration of Juliet forbade all remonstrance, and excluded any surprise. She well knew, and had long seen, that the distress which is the offspring of public calamity, not of private misfortune, however it may ruin prosperity, never humbles the mind. Gabriella, in a letter of elegant acknowledgments, to obviate any accusation of undue pride, solicited the assistance of Elinor in procuring orders for embroidery amongst the ladies of her acquaintance. Elinor, zealous to serve, and fearless to demand, instantly attacked, by note or by message, every rich female at Brighthelmstone, urging the generous, and shaming the niggardly, till there was scarcely a woman of fortune in the place, who had not given, or promised, a commission for some fine muslin work. The two friends, through this commanding protection, began their new plan of life under the most favourable auspices, and had soon more employment than time, though they limited themselves to five hours for sleep, though their meals were rather swallowed than eaten, and though they allowed not a moment for any kind of recreation, of rest, or of exercise, save the sacred visit which they unfailingly made together, at break of day, to the little grave in the churchyard upon the hill. Yet here first, since her arrival on the British shores, the immediate rapturous moment of landing, and the fortnight passed with Lady Aurora Granville accepted, here first sweet contentment, soft hopes, and gentle happiness visited the bosom of Juliet. No privation was hard, no toil was severe, no application was tedious, while the friend of her heart was by her side. Whose sorrows she could mitigate, whose affections she could share, and whose tears she could sometimes chase. But the relief was not more exquisite than it was transitory. A week only had passed in delicious repose, when Gabriella received intelligence that her husband was taken ill. Whatever was her reluctance to quitting the spot, where her memory was every moment fed with cherished recollections, she could not hesitate to depart. But when Juliet, in consonance with her inclination and her promise, prepared to accompany her, that hydra-headed intruder upon human schemes and desires, difficulty, arose, in as many shapes as she could form projects, to impede her wishes. Money they had none. Even for the return to town of Gabriella, her husband was fain to have recourse for aid to certain admirable persons, whose benevolence had enabled her, upon the illness of her son, to quit it for Brighthelmstone, and, in a situation of indigence so obvious, could they propose carrying away with them the work with which they were entrusted? Juliet, indeed, had still Harleigh's banknotes in her possession but she turned inflexibly from the temptation of adopting a mode of conduct, 
which she had always condemned as weak and degrading, that of investing circumstance with decision, in conscientious dilemmas. These terrible obstacles broke into all their plans, their wishes, their happiness, involved them in new distress, deluged them in tears, and, after every effort with which ingenious friendship could combat them, ended in compelling a separation, Gabriella embraced, with pungent affliction, the sorrowing Juliet, shed her last bitter tears over the grave of her lost darling, and, by the assistance of the angelic beings already hinted at, whose delicacy, whose feeling, whose respect for misfortune, made their beneficence as balsamic to sensibility, as it was salutary to want, returned alone to the capital. Juliet thus, perforce remaining, and once again left to herself, was nearly overwhelmed with grief at a stroke so abrupt and unexpected, so ruinous to her lately acquired contentment and dearly prized social enjoyment. Yet she suffered not regret and disappointment to consume her time, however cruelly they preyed upon her spirits, and demolished her comfort. Solitarily she continued the employment which she had socially begun, but without relaxing in diligence and application, without permitting herself the smallest intermission that could be avoided, urged not alone to maintain herself, and to replace what she had touched of the deposit of Harley, but excited, yet more forcibly, by the fond hope of rejoining her friend, to which she eagerly looked forward, as the result and reward of her activity and labour. End of chapter 42 Recording by Roxana Nazari